If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome to the Calling History Podcast. Welcome back to part two of Rochambeau. In the last episode, Rochambeau described how ill-equipped the American soldiers were, how close Washington was to attacking New York instead of Yorktown, which would have been a terrible mistake, and how he committed his own funds to pay the American soldiers. In this episode, you'll hear about the Battle of Yorktown and why the English would not surrender to George Washington, how Washington handled it, and some grisly details about the French Revolution and the thousands of people who were shot, drowned, and guillotined. Your history of military service started at a very young age, from my understanding, and you had been, Mm. your family had been fighting in wars, and you had been fighting in wars your whole life. When you see the American fighting man, is this something that you're totally unaccustomed to? Are you accustomed to the soldiers on the battlefield all having all the supplies they need and being well-dressed and all that? Well, obviously, there are issues with supplies constantly in European warfare at this time. I go back to my younger days in the 1740s during the War of the Austrian Succession. France had penetrated very deeply into Central Europe, into the province of Silesia, which Prussia had taken, which was one of the reasons for this conflict, and then decided they would make a separate peace, leaving us essentially in the center of Europe with supplies, yes, of course, but cut off from any other supplies that could have been coming from Prussia that would have been closer. So no, we are very keenly aware of the necessity to keep a supply chain and a supply train very close to the soldiers when they are fighting. But no, I have never seen anything like this. To see the kind of misery that I saw within the Continental Army in America when I first arrived, and in some cases on the way down, you would have to go back to the 30 Years' War in Europe, which was from 1618 to 1648, which was a terribly disastrous war of religion that continued for 30 years, in which both the military and civilian populations were brutalized and and decimated and robbed and pillaged, and there were no supplies. And this this was common practice on the battlefield at this time. So no, it is something that, that I was keenly aware of, but had not witnessed to this extent. On one note about money, I will tell you also that, as I said, I loaned 26,000 livres to pay one month's salary to the continental forces assembled here. My son, whom I had sent back, like Lafayette, to go back and lobby for more men in late 1780, early 1781, he eventually comes back with 6 million livres from the French government. Really? And the promise of 10 million more livres that His Majesty Louis said had taken out a loan with Dutch banks on his own name. Oh so you can God. see the amounts of money that are being provided, promised, supplied by France here, and not just French banks. It is His Majesty himself. It is the government, but it is, it is also His Majesty in his own name. Well, it sounds like your son was uh, definitely the kind of person that could get things done, and it's no wonder. Well, I will tell you, I will tell you, I will interrupt you here one moment. I was not terribly pleased with my son for the time he was gone because I felt he could have perhaps moved things along a little faster, and I learned subsequently that, unlike myself, he had a great penchant for life at court, 
and was very glad to participate in the balls and the banquets and the ceremonies and pageants that took place there. So I would have liked him to have come back with the six million a bit earlier than he did. Well, now I was gonna. I was actually just about to compliment him, but now I see what you're saying because you needed those supplies right now. But it, well, it's it's no wonder where he got his his resourcefulness from because weren't you when you were talking about the the war of the Austrian succession? Were you, weren't you like yes. 15 years old? No, it's a bit after that. I actually, of course, I was destined to become a priest, and uh, I had one elder brother who was one year older than I. Gabriel César was his name. And he died when I was 15. And at that point, I am pulled out of the seminary and I am sent to finish my studies in the town of Blois with the Jesuits. But as a young aristocrat, he was now going to become a military officer. And uh, from there, I go to the Ecole Ecole Royale Militaire in Paris. And from there, I become, as I said, a young cavalry officer in the the Saint-Simon Cavalry Regiment, which was the regiment in which my uncle, my mother's brother, was a captain. So that is normally how one progresses. You would go to a regiment in which you have a relative who is serving, or who may even command the regiment. As a captain, that was not his case, but that is where I started in the cavalry. And from there, I, I went on to see what was happening in Silesia, as I said. I got very ill. In fact, I developed a fever that was very debilitating during this time period. And I was able to make it back, but this sickness would plague me for the rest, almost the rest of my life. I was, I was extremely ill. I would, I would vomit blood. I would have fevers. I could not get over this infection of some kind. But when I do go home, this is when I am taken by my mother to Versailles. As I said, she is the governess of the children of the Duke d'Orléans. This is a different branch of the royal family, but very high in at court. And I am made an aide-de-camp to the Duke d'Orléans himself at that point. So again, through family connections, my my promotions are coming in this manner. I'll I'll tell you one, one last story about this, but when we were in the Austrian Netherlands, and as I said before, siege warfare is quite common at this time. Yorktown, in fact, was my 14th siege. We were laying siege to the city of Namur in, in the Austrian Netherlands. And we were successful in capturing the city, but the fortress itself that we were sieging was set on fire by the Dutch who were defending it, along with the, uh, the English. And I rushed in and began throwing barrels of gunpowder out of the magazine because they were smoldering. And in retrospect, it was not a terribly smart thing to be doing, but that is what I did. And as a result, I was able to be, how would you say, backed or supported by the Duc d'Orléans and His Majesty Louis XV, Louis XV, who was present at the Siege of Namur. And it's at that point that I was even allowed to ride in the king's coach when he inspected military soldiers and for military ceremonies at this time. And I was invited to dine at Versailles on multiple occasions. And uh, this is how eventually I was able to buy a colonelcy in uh, the Regiment de la Marche, so a very old French infantry regiment. Uh, but that started at that time. So by the time I was 24 years old or so, I was uh, already a colonel. What is the problem you have with the Austrians? Why are you guys fighting with the Austrians to begin with? Well, next to the British, the Austrians have always been the arch enemies of France. And the war of the Austrian succession was basically started at the instigation of Frederick the Great of Prussia. 
the succession in question was the Empress Maria Theresa. Her right to succeed to the throne was disputed because she was a woman. And this despite the fact that her father, who had no sons, had, through a, what they called the pragmatic sanction, had established that his daughter would in fact succeed him on the throne. An earlier decision, however, had said that the Austrian throne, if a male heir fails, it would go to the daughters of the, his father, the previous emperor, who had married respectively the electors of Bavaria and Saxony. And as a result, Charles VI, who was Maria Theresa's father, had decided that she would succeed and bypassing his nieces. And that set off a dispute uh, in which Frederick the Great decided this would be an opportune time to both uh, dispute Maria Theresa's succession and to take the province of Silesia for Prussia, which he did. To do this, he allied with, with France, and both of us began this conflict with Austria, who was joined by Britain, Hanover, which was obviously in personal union with the King of Great Britain, and other German principalities were arrayed against the French and the Prussians. As I said, though, the Prussians backed off, leading France in the lurch here, and that is what happened. Louis XV eventually gave back the Austrian Netherlands that we had actually been successful in taking. And uh, in 1748 is when the treaty was signed and the Austrian Netherlands went down and the war ended. In fact, there was a saying that, that was developed at the time that anything that was considered to be not a very good sense or good or sound mind was called as stupid as the peace. And in point of fact, at the end of the whole conflict, everyone left this knowing that potential for conflict would not be long in coming and looked at it more as an armistice rather than an actual peace. And in fact, in 1752, when what you call the French and Indian War started, and then the war, the Seven Years War started, that proved to be right. You had said something a couple minutes ago that Yorktown was your 14th siege. Yes. First of all, I want to say that you might, you need to pick up another hobby because that's a lot of sieges. And <laughs> the, that's a lot. And but at the same time, with that level of expertise, I mean, not everybody can say that they've done 14 sieges in their life. With that level of expertise, I look back to what you said a minute ago about Washington being so adamant about taking over New York. But with all of your experience of 14 sieges, it's clear that would have resulted in a huge loss of men or an outright failure, and that Yorktown was the place to go. So I guess my next question is, what would have happened if you had not been able to talk Washington into going to Yorktown? Like, it, How do you see the siege of New York playing out in, if that had been the only option? Well, what I see happening is that the guards would have fell on and left. We would have had the additional over 3,000 French soldiers at our disposal, and it would not have taken very long for a larger British fleet to easily reach New York and put an end to our efforts. And this played out also in Yorktown, by the way. There were British ships still in Yorktown. One, in fact, was a uh, captured French vessel called the Guadeloupe. And the British were firing on us at Yorktown from these ships in the York River. So just because it is a siege and it is a land battle does not mean that if water is nearby, that navies and ships cannot be brought to bear in an attempt to relieve the siege. Just as I mentioned at the siege of Toulon, you had Admiral Hood of the British Navy, the Royal Navy, who was 
also in the American Revolution, but also he had been dispatched to defend the city against the Republican army under General Bonaparte. So that is, I believe, what would have most likely happened in New York, and given the large areas of water around the island of Manhattan and Long Island and the entire seaboard there, it would not have taken very long at all for the British to not only attack us while we were attacking New York, but to offload more soldiers who could easily have marched overland to Connecticut, just as we did, to reach the city of New York. So I would see that as being a complete debacle. We would have had no means to escape. All of the soldiers would have been, including Washington and myself, would most likely have been made prisoner. Clearly, you were the right man at the right time. So the Battle of Yorktown is about to begin, and uh, the majority of the soldiers who are poorly outfitted, and everybody comes together in that one spot. How long did this battle last? What, what did this look like? Well, we marched out to Williamsburg on the 28th of September, 1781. Yorktown is barely three or four hours march from Williamsburg, if that. And we arrived that afternoon and began about midday and began setting up our camps and proposed to survey the territory and find out what we needed to do. And I determined that the Continental Army would take the position of honor on the battlefield, which is to the right of the enemy. And so the Continental Army was facing to the right of the British, and the French Army I kept to the left. And the first thing we would note, we noticed very shortly after arriving, was that for some unknown reason, Lord Cornwallis had abandoned the outermost perimeters of his defenses. And so there were some trenches already dug, and some redoutes that were there left unguarded and unmanned. And we immediately took our positions within these areas to establish our first line of attack and began to set up the camps and begin to plan what we would do. One more thing you need to know is the fact that there was another French admiral involved in this conflict. Admiral de Barras, who had been offshore, off of Newport, off of New England, he had loaded onto his ships all of the heavy artillery that we had brought with us in the expedition particulière, these would have been cannon far too heavy to carry that distance. It was almost 700 miles. And so the heavy artillery that was needed for siege warfare had been given to the uh, Admiral de Barra for his transport to Yorktown, which he did. He arrived there, I believe it was around even the 10th of September, so after the Battle of the Cape, after the arrival of Admiral de Grasse. And once those cannon were in place, we could begin to really lay the siege. Obviously, we had some smaller pieces of artillery, which we were successful in moving some of the ships out of the way. And by the way, many of the ships that the British had there, they decided to scuttle eventually during this campaign. But once we had the heavy artillery in place, we were able to really begin the, the siege in earnest. We are digging the earthworks, the, the trenches, we are dispatching people across the river to the Gloucester Point, where the British also have a very large force established of British soldiers, American loyalists. Over there, however, is the Duc de Lausanne. So the French cavalry is over on that side of the river. And on the 5th of October, the Duc de Lausanne is able to defeat the British General Tarleton in a cavalry battle that results in basically a stalemate at that point. And they can't leave, they can't go anywhere, and everyone is digging in. So we are digging in on the other side in front of Yorktown. 
So finally, on the 9th of October, when the heavy cannons are in place, George Washington determined that the honor of firing the first shot would go to France, and the honor would go to the Marquis de Saint-Simon, the commanding general who had come with the over 3,000 French soldiers from the Caribbean. And the Marquis de Saint-Simon shoots at the British ships, and the Guadeloupe is immediately moved as far away as possible out, out of range, but also out of our range. Two hours later, General Henry Knox, the great American artillery general, gives the Lemstock to General Washington to shoot the first American shot in this campaign, which he does. And the shelling starts at that point and continues for hours and days thereafter. And at that point where the story is said that the first shot that was fired by Washington is the one that hit the house where the British general staff was planning what their strategy might be over dinner at this occasion. And the house was ultimately almost completely destroyed. And certainly the dinner was ended. But again, I think it probably had more to do with the continuous shelling that occurred after the 9th of October throughout the other days following. Rather than one lucky shot. No, one lucky shot would have been almost unheld of. That would not have destroyed the house, but it certainly would have gotten their attention. So the siege goes on, and you just keep, just continue to unload artillery on them. And then eventually Cornwallis decides he's had enough. Is it that simple? Well, one of the things that happened during the course of the siege, I remember, as I said, with the siege military, with the siege warfare concept, you are working from trenches and these roadouts that are large holes, essentially, that are fortified with what we call abati and logs and things of this nature to prevent the enemy from assaulting it with their infantry. And you are constantly digging trenches closer and closer to the target, to the objective city, in this case, the city of Yorktown. And uh, so we are moving closer all the time. Eventually, the, many of the redoutes are taken by the French and Americans during the course of these days. Two redoutes remain, redoutes number 9 and 10. And on the 14th of October, we determine that this is when we are going to take these positions as well. And if we are able to take these positions and man them with cannon, then we will be able to fire mercilessly on the British in Yorktown. So what happens is, is we decide that the French will attack Redoute number 9 and the Americans will attack number 10. General Lafayette is given the overall command of the American forces that will attack Redoute number 10. I appoint the uh, Comte de, de, de Dupont, who is the commanding officer of the Dupont Regiment. This is a German regiment. I don't know if you speak German, but Dupont translates to Zweibrücken. There's a city called Zweibrücken, close to the French border. At the time, this was its own duchy. It was related to Bavaria, but mm -hmm. it was its own duchy and provided this regiment to French service. And so the Comte de Dupont, who is the owner, the commanding general, if you will, or colonel of this regiment, is put in charge. But I also put with them the, the regiment Gatinet. The Gatinet were broken off from my old regiment, the Regiment d'Auvergne, which I commanded during the Seven Years' War uh, in Europe. So I was very dedicated to this regiment. When they were broken off, they resented it deeply, and they, they thought of nothing more than being reincorporated into the Regiment d'Auvergne. They had a very long and distinguished history. 
And so I told them, I said, before the battle began, I said, my children, I had need of you tonight. I trust you will not forget that we have served together many times. Auvergne sans tache, Auvergne the stainless or the, the pure. Mm-hmm. And they replied to me, they said, Roll into Auvergne, give us back Auvergne and we will fight like lions to the last man. And the chasseur and the grenadier companies of the, this regiment, more than the line infantry, were included in this assault. And even though everyone else had been told to stay out of the way, to stay low, the officers of the Gatinet also came out little by little and joined them as they approached the Redoute. And this Redoute was not being held by British, it was being held by Hessians, by Germans. And so when the Germans shout out, Verda, who is there? And there is no answer. The Gatinet start firing immediately with the Dupont. And both of these noble regiments take this Redoute and, and I think it was barely seven minutes uh, it took to do this. It was very fierce fighting. It was incredible. The, and you have to imagine, you are climbing up a hill that is covered in logs, in spikes, in fences that have been made that you can't get through them. And you're trying to crawl into a hole where they are shooting down on you. This is how this worked. And in the end, they took it. And they lost only 15 men. 57 were wounded, however. And I will tell you that His Majesty Louis XVI himself restored the honor that was perceived lost by this regiment when they were broken off from the Auvergne and created a new Royal Auvergne Regiment in July of 1781. Hmm. And so they they essentially covered themselves in glory and His Majesty was most generous in, in respecting my wish as I wrote to him and said, this is what was said, this is what we must do, and he did it. And it is a true testament, I think, to the dedication of these men who did this very dangerous mission that evening to take Redoubt Number 9. And I know we hear a lot about Redoubt Number 10 with the bayonet attack, which is true, and that is indeed extremely dangerous, and I believe many more men were lost. Lafayette himself did not lead this, but Alexander Hamilton did, who was an aide-de-camp to Washington at the time. But he was determined that he'd be allowed to take part in this attack on Redoubt Number 10. And Washington allowed it. Initially, he did not want to because Hamilton spoke French. He needed people who could speak French. And he was eventually allowed to do it. They were made to attack Redoubt Number 10 using only bayonets. Although one man kept a bullet in his musket. And when Alexander Hamilton was in distress because he was surrounded by several British soldiers who were about to bayonet him, he was able to shoot one with the one bullet he had in his musket, thereby saving Hamilton at that point. And then the others were able to rush in and dispense with the others who were there. But this is bloody hand-to-hand combat that was going on at this time. Yeah, that sounds terrible. Yes, both positions, though, were taken at the end of the night, and we were able to move up our heavy artillery even further and take those positions and man them and aim the guns even closer to Yorktown. And then, so how far away from taking Redoubt 9 and 10, how far away from that are you from the battle ending and Cornwallis giving up? Well, this would have been two days later, on the 17th, is when Cornwallis actually surrenders, when the talks begin on surrendering, and the actual surrender ceremony takes place on the 19th of October. Now, I've heard that when the surrender took place, that the English did not want to surrender to the Americans, and so they tried to surrender to the French. Is any of that true? 
Yes, indeed, that is quite true. That is a that is a most unfortunate, in my opinion, blemish on the honor of the British forces who were there. I understand their position in terms of viewing the Americans and the Continental Army as traitors and as rebels, and therefore not not worthy of military honor. And so when when the British came out, Lord Cornwallis was not there. And instead, he sent a man named uh, Charles O'Hara, General uh, Charles O'Hara, to oversee the surrender ceremony. As the British filed out, they filed down past two columns of soldiers, one on the right, one on the left, one American, one French. And initially, he tried to surrender his soul to me. And I indicated no, and I pointed to General Washington. I must add that in, when they were marching through, none of the British would even look at the Americans, they would do an eyes right only in looking at the French soldiers and not the Americans at all. And O'Hara was not pleased by my gesture to, to surrender to Washington, but he turned and uh, proceeded to Washington, and Washington dismissed him as well and told him to surrender to his second in command, which he did. And the sword was presented and the sword was touched by the general who was there. And uh, this was this is Benjamin Lincoln. General Lincoln was the second in command at the surrender ceremony. Uh, General Lincoln touched the sword and then returned it to O'Hara and allowing him to keep it as a, as a gesture of military courtesy, which had not been shown to either the American soldiers, the Continental Army as a whole, or to General Washington himself. And it is still a great debate as to whether or not this was an unfortunate set of circumstances and misunderstanding, or if this had been planned all along as one last insult prior to surrendering all of their arms, all their horses, wagons, and everything else that was there, as well as these thousands of British soldiers as prisoners of war. Once again, just like you said, the English egos are out of control. They are literally giving up and walking away from losing this battle, and they just have to stick it in Washington's face one more time it's just a, it's just an out-of-control ego situation. Well, as I said, I can only explain it by the fact that they consider the Americans to be Englishmen still, in rebellion, and therefore not deserving of the military courtesies and honors that will be rendered to a true foe, such as France or Austria or Prussia or Spain, any of these countries. I, I think also there was some disbelief and shock. It was quite clear from my observation that many of the British soldiers were drunk. They had been drinking the night before. Uh, I would have been drinking. Well, it was also very clear to me that many of the officers were in a terrible state of emotion. Mm. Uh, many of them were crying. Uh, they were uh, clearly upset and disturbed by all of this. Uh, I think in shock, really, uh, really, for what had happened. Gosh, uh, and, what a story. Uh, and, but I will tell you something else that unfortunately was another point of discord between myself and General Washington and the American and French forces, and that is this. After the surrender took place, it was, as I said, military custom and courtesy of the time that the victors would host the defeated officers of the enemy to dinners and, and do so quite cordially and to exchange opinions and views and the rest of it. This was not a concept that was understood by the Continental Army, the general staff, and even Washington himself. 
And yet this is what we did. This, this is what was done. And this, I believe, set a sour note to the end of the surrender at Yorktown between Washington, myself, and respective armies. I myself actually loaned 150,000 livres to Cornwallis to return to England. Really? Uh, yes, indeed. Yes. Again, this is something that gentlemen would do. We were enemies until we were not. We were not at that point, but we were still gentlemen. And this would have been quite common at the time. Just thank you if you went to me afterwards, because he sent me a very large wheel of Vermont cheese, which he, <laughs> which he uh, purchased, I assume, and route back to England, because when he left Virginia, he went back to New England. And from there, he eventually went back to New York, and from there on to England again. I saw him again after the war, in fact, and corresponded with him. I corresponded with Admiral Hood as well, and others who had been present there. Again, France and England were not the core at that point, and we were all gentlemen. And yeah. this is just the way it was done. That's the most expensive cheese you ever bought. No, he repaid the money as well. It was a loan. <laughs> okay, good. It was a loan. Well... This is an incredible story, and the thing that makes me so happy about this is that I know what happens next now, because now what happens is you go back to France, and they have a parade for you, and then, of course, France is completely at peace, and you are given a beautiful castle on a hill to live in with your family, and there's no battle or strife from that point forward. Is that pretty much what happens next? Well, I already had the castle. No, there was no parade for me. Unlike for the Marquis Lafayette, I was, of course, acknowledged. I do not mean to say that, that I was not recognized. No, His Majesty was most generous. I was made uh, a knight of the order of the Holy Spirit. This is France's highest decoration. It is the decoration that you see the king wearing in all of the portraits. I was elevated to this position upon my return. I was also given command of the, the armies in the north of France at that time near the Dutch, Belgian, or still the Austrian Netherlands is what it is, near the border there in the north of France, a very large and important strategic command that I was given where, but I did not take it up immediately. I was given, how do you say, congé, I was given leave for one year before I was to take that up. Poems were written about me, in fact, and this was, for me, it was very overwhelming. I was fine with what I had done, I was very glad for the success. I was very conscious of the sacrifices made by my soldiers, all of whom, by the way, we all stayed there for another year. Washington and the Continental Army returned to New York very fast. We French, we remained in Virginia for most of the next year. I was able to travel to Virginia to, to meet with different dignitaries from Virginia itself. And eventually, I made my way back as the expedition particulière marched back to New England to depart for France. I went with them as far as Annapolis in Maryland, and I left the United States at that point on the 29th of January, 1783, and uh, returned to France, arriving in February of 1784. 1783 uh, being the end of the American Revolution. Yes, exactly. And again, you make a very good point. Just because the Battle of Yorktown, the siege of Yorktown had been won, did not mean that the independence had been won at that time. The British were still in New York. They were still in Charleston and Savannah and places in the South. And the soldiers were still here. They were at the disposal of George Washington. This is the thing that's confusing me because 
here you are this hero to the Americans, and certainly if Lafayette is forgiven for playing an important role and disobeying orders and he's a hero, well, you're certainly a hero. And 10 years later, you're imprisoned and you almost get the guillotine and you're in the middle of the reign of terror and the French Revolution. I mean, didn't well, things just go haywire? Yeah, this is a different. You know, this is a different world you're speaking of. When I returned, as I said, for four years, I was in Calais. I was in command there in 1789 when the Bastille prison was taken, which is the start of the French Revolution and what we had hoped would be the end of it. Actually, it's when that occurred. I was made the governor of Alsace, which is further to the east, near Germany, and so I was outside of Paris in 1789 when this happened. However. Yes, you are correct. The, the situation in France deteriorated for a variety of reasons after the Bastille fell and after the revolution continued year after year. In 1790, and this is where the Marquis de Lafayette's role in the French Revolution is not necessarily known by you here in America, but Lafayette turns to France, as you said, a great hero. He is fetid. There are parades, there are rewards, there are all kinds of things that happen. He is toasted throughout the country and certainly in Paris. And he he is made eventually almost commander-in-chief of the armed forces because what occurs is, is that, of course, the fall of the Bastille occurs in July of 1789. In October of 1789, today we're the 5th of October and the 6th of October. In 1789 is when Louis XVI and Queen Marie Antoinette and their children make the decision to return to Paris with the mob that had come to to make remonstrances for the, the poverty, for the lack of bread, for the despair. And they agreed to, to go back to Paris at that point. Lafayette steps in and is proclaimed the leader of the commanding officer of the Garde Nationale. This is not an institution that existed until this point. And the Garde Nationale is essentially all of the military units in the Parisian area at this time. And so he assumes a very important military position of command and political influence. And it is through his planning and his strategy that France is moving in its revolution to become a, a monarchic still, because he was still very much in favor of having a king, but would be governed by a constitution and by an elected assembly, which is not what happened before in France. And this was his goal. It was to make France a constitutional monarchy like Britain was at the time. Unfortunately, the demands of the revolution became more and more incoherent and more radical, and especially on things governing the church and the king's role in the church. And the king himself was a very devout man. He was obviously a Roman Catholic. And when the revolution started making most of the political demands his majesty acquiesced to, everything he was asked to do, he did. But when it came to more and more demands on the church and the subordination of the church to the state, he became less and less willing to participate in that. And at one point, the royal family fled. They determined at that time that they needed to flee to, to save themselves and hopefully come back with the Austrians and Prussians and the British to retake France, to destroy the revolution, essentially. Unfortunately, they were captured at a place called Varennes, which is between Paris and the German border, and were brought back. And it is at that point, actually, that the idea 
of maintaining a monarchy in France is no longer a possibility. Lafayette was in fact blamed by some for having engineered the flight of the royal family. And Lafayette is himself then censured, so his political star is waning. But Lafayette, like myself, we are soldiers. One of the last acts that Louis XVI performed was to make me and one other man, a German actually, born in Bavaria, a Marshal of France. This is France's highest military distinction, which he did in December of 1791. He made both of you the Marshal or just you? No, there are many marshals of France. Uh, the Maréchal de France is a rank. It is the equivalent of a four-star general, or even a five-star general, if you will. It's, it's not easy to equate that. But a Maréchal de France, of which there can be many, is no. the highest rank you can attain in the French military. And so both myself and the Baron Luckner, uh, Nicolas Luckner, were made Maréchal de France at, at this point. I am given command of the army in the north, where I had already been serving. He is given command also of a force that is in the north, because that is where, by this time, France is at war with Austria and Prussia, who are very anxious to preserve the monarchy and protect the king and queen, who are still there in France at this time, and under no threat at this point, but they still declare war on France. So we are made then to go to the field to fight with them, as is Lafayette. Lafayette is finally made a French general, and he also is fighting against them, so is this the first time that Lafayette is wearing a French military uniform? It's the first time he's wearing a general uniform in France, yes. Okay. Yes. He had been in the military. He was an officer when he left France, but he left his post in France to come to America. It is not the same thing as you might think it is now, but he had been in the military at that point. Okay. But when he comes back, he assumes his command of the Garde Nationale, which he then relinquishes and is appointed lieutenant, a lieutenant general in the French armies as well. So he is leading armies, just like I am leading armies, just like uh, Lugner is leading armies, and just like the Minister of War at that time, the Comte de Maurier, is leading an army. Unfortunately, there are some reverses on the battlefield. As I said before, the revolution is becoming more and more radical. Are people losing their heads yet? No, not at this point. Okay. Not at this point. Lafayette determines that things have progressed too far. He and some members of his staff, while in the Austrian Netherlands, defect, essentially. I don't know how you would say that. He learned that the, the Convention, the revolutionary government, had put out an, an arrest order for him, and he left and fled to the Austrians. He stayed as long as he could. He was put in prison for many years in Bohemia by the Austrians. His poor wife, Madame la Marquise Adrienne, was there with him as well as one of their daughters. And his son, George Washington, he was able to get him out of France before anything could happen to him. And he went to live at Melville in the fact of George Washington for the remainder of the revolution in France. To be clear, you're saying that his son's name was George Washington. He was that close to Washington. He named his son yes. George Washington. Yes, absolutely, indeed. Okay. Indeed. So he gets his son out, and then? And he is arrested by the Austrians and, and kept in prison uh, for many years thereafter. Certainly at this time, he's still in prison. Jeez. So what year are we talking about right now? When do you go to prison? Well, at this point, as I said, the, this, the other gentleman who was made a marshal of France as I was, he is also leading armies. He is arrested. 
Dumouriez is uh, the, the Minister of War for the Republic of France, is put under suspicion and a warrant is put out for his arrest. He flees. He flees abroad. He immigrates. In fact, the French, French aristocrats have been leaving France since the fall of the, almost since the fall of the Bastille, mm-hmm. and certainly since the flight to Varennes and the capturing of the royal family and bringing them back to Paris in disgrace. Our aristocrats have been leaving France quite liberally, and we call them immigrants. They go to Switzerland, they go to Germany, they go to England. And as a soldier, I did not think that I would be caught up in any of that because already I had served for almost 50 years, right. not more. And I had been respected by my soldiers. I had served both my king and now the state, the nation, which is what we now call it, for many years. And I felt that I would be above any reproach. And unfortunately, as was the Baron de Gner, but he was guillotined in, I believe it was February of 1793. I'm sorry, 94. 94, I believe he was guillotined in 94. At this point, King Louis XVI has been dead for a couple of years. And King Louis XVII, he's captive somewhere, correct? Yes, the Dauphin, the, the Dauphin is, is what we call the heir to the throne in France. It's like the Prince of Wales in England, who now, yes, upon the death of his father on the scaffold in January 1793, is, is imprisoned in the Temple prison in Paris with his sister. And for a time, Queen Marie Antoinette, until she too is brought before the tribunal, she is put, she is taken away from her children, and she is taken to a very old fortress on the banks of the Seine, in Paris called the Conciergerie. The Conciergerie is not far from the Louvre. It is the center of power of the French monarchy and the French state now in the heart of Paris. It sits on the left bank, almost directly across from the Louvre. And that is where she is put. That, in fact, is where I will end up. I was infirm. I was quite old. And I did not agree with the strategies that were being put forward by the politicians of the revolutionary government in France, among them, General Dumouriez, whom I spoke before, who ultimately fled as well. And so I, I took my leave and retired and went back to the Chateau de Rochambeau in Vendôme and hoped to be able to lead the rest of my life there in peace and tranquility. Which you deserve after 50 years of honorable service to your country and our country, and yet the exact opposite happens. So now what? You were correct. That is what one would have thought. But <clears throat> on the 14th of April, 1794, emissaries from Paris come, and they want to question me. And they search through all my papers. They search through my house. They search everywhere. They find nothing incriminating. And yet I'm still taken, arrested, and brought to the conciergerie on the 21st of April, 1794. I will stay there. I, and by the way, my old wounds are bothering me at this point. Some oh, of these yeah. wounds do not heal. I, I don't think I gave you the description of the wounds I had as, as a young man, but at the Battle of Laufeld, for example, in the Austrian Succession War in 1777 in July, I am wounded in near the eye by shrapnel. I am wounded in the thigh and fragment or a shell of something about the size of a pigeon's egg is shot through my leg. It, it misses the bone and an artery, but the wound doesn't really heal properly for the rest of my life. So I have that. I also have other wounds from a battle called Klosterkamp, where I receive another ball to the thigh. 
that was during the Seven Years' War. Of course, field military medicine is not the best. I was still weakened, obviously, from the fever I had contracted as a very young man still that never really went away. And so by this time, at my age, these things are chronic ailments for me. I receive right. no medical attention when I'm taken. I'm in great pain and suffering. I am taken to the concierge on the 21st of April. I'm finally admitted to the hospital there. And I do receive some comfort and some relief from my suffering. And for some reason, I don't know why yet, a committee comes in from the tribunal and says that it starts to read off names. And these are names of my comrades there in this hospital situation. And my name is not read. And I am also somewhat held of hearing, I must admit. And, and I inquire as to what is going on. And the guard rudely says to me, Marshal, I have nothing for you. I told you I have nothing for you. Go lie down. And so I am left perplexed with what is going on. And all of these men, as well as the sister of the king, were executed together on the 10th of May. Wow. Uh, Madame Elisabeth, who had been a, a very gentle, uh, very kind, very compassionate woman, was tried and executed in this, this most horrid manner on the 10th of May of 1794, along with... This is the guillotine, right? Colleagues here. Yes, that is correct. It, this, is, this was determined to be the means by which executions would take place in France uh, during the revolution, and this is what happened. But, and so I wait. I wait many months. And I am still not released. I file appeal after appeal. I am finally given a trial to which there is no evidence against me. And yet I'm still not released. And I wait and wait. And I, in, this, in desperation, I write to the government that, that I have, you know, all I have seen from the revolution is that as an aristocrat, the only right I have, unlike every other man in France now, is to be the first one in line for the scaffold. And I said, I wrote, actually, I cannot believe that this is the era of equality. And yet a former aristocrat has no right except to march to the scaffold before anybody else and be the last man to be allowed to prove his innocence. These are not the principles I learned from Washington, my colleague and my friend, when we were fighting side by side for American independence. And, you know, I think perhaps that had some effect because I was released shortly thereafter sharply being a relative term because it was still several more months. But yes. had somebody not changed their mind, whether it was by way of your pen or just somebody realizing that you're one of the good guys after 50 years fighting for your country, your head would have been in a bucket, correct? It is, it is, it is indeed possible because even though uh, Robespierre, who uh, was the radical, most radical leader of the revolution and the man who was instrumental in establishing the reign of terror where thousands of people were, were executed in this manner. He fell from power himself on the 29th of July, 1794, and was executed on the 28th of July, along with 106 of his closest associates. And the executions continued, though. So, yes, I don't know if I had just been forgotten. I don't know. I don't know. I did not ask any questions. If there was ever a time to be forgotten, that was the time. Yes, so I was able to return to my house in Paris that was still there, still in my name. I still owned it. And from there, I returned just a little over a year ago to the Chateau de Rochambeau, where you find me today. So, and this time that you're in right now, this is the time that they call the Reign of Terror. And you're saying that more than a thousand people have been beheaded? Oh, well, yes, but that doesn't count the uh, thousands of people who have been brutally executed in many other ways. If you look and see what the Republicans did in 
the Vendée in the western part of France, there were over 10,000 men, women, and children who were either shot. And when they realized that they were wasting bullets by shooting them, they tied them down in barges and drowned them in rivers. The revolution in France is much different than the revolution in America. I remarked, in fact, to General Washington when I returned after the fall of the Bastille, I related to him that our two countries are very different. And it is as if we are eating soup. And you Americans, you wait till the soup is cooled before you taste it. We French, we act very fast. And we taste the soup very fast, even though we know it is likely to burn us. Mm. And this is exactly what we had in the French Revolution. Things happen very fast. And my hope was, as I wrote to Washington, we go very fast. God will that we will reach our aim, meaning that we will reach our aim of a, a revolution in France that produces a just and fair and equal society. And, and I will say this, I am not against the revolution per se. I am against certainly the terror and the excesses of the revolution that have been adapted towards I, uh, like Washington, like many of the uh, military leaders of the American army, I'm a Freemason. And my wife, Madame La Comtesse, is also involved in the, the women's auxiliary of Freemasonry in Paris. We are very liberal in our ideas, and we espouse and support the ideals of the Enlightenment, where you talk about equality. In France, it was translated into liberty, equality, and fraternity. We are very very supportive of these concepts and would have wished that Lafayette's vision of a constitutional monarchy could have been realized in France. So I just want to make that point clear. I am not, I did not flee because again, France is my home, it's my country. Uh, and, uh, and I felt that I was safe. But one more quick story about this is that after Yorktown, after American independence had been won, the American Congress sent two cannon each from Yorktown to myself into the Amiral de Gras, and I put this cannon in front of the Chateau de Rochambeau. During my incarceration in the Conciergerie, more came from the revolutionary government uh, and threatened my wife. And my wife, Madame de Comtesse, stated, I will show how I support you. I will give you these cannons in support of our fight for liberty against the Austrians and the Prussians and the British. So take these cannons. And they did. And unfortunately, the cannon have never come back. I don't know what happened to them. But that just shows to illustrate that I am not an absolute monarchist. I am not an aristocrat that wants no justice for the people, no equality for the people, and no fair and just system of government for my country. No, on the contrary. Yeah, it seems very clear that you want the best for your country and maybe even for the world. General, I'm just so thankful for all your time today. I have two questions for you. One, and I'm, I'm just curious, and it, it is of no consequence, and then one that I think is of serious consequence. So I'm going to ask the easier one first. If you were sitting, drinking a glass of wine with a friend, and he was to call you by your name as friends of a long time, what would be the name he would call you? Well, to my face, my friends, my family would, would call me by my first name, Jean-Baptiste. Okay. Because my son uses the, the name Donatien as the name he is called in close company. But if normally, if someone would address me, it would be, now that I'm a Marshal of France, it would be Monsieur le Maréchal, or it would be Monsieur le Comte. Second question. The French Revolution, 
Is it completely the fault of the American Revolution? Did the French see the Americans winning this war against the the most powerful country in the world, and then the French look at it and say, maybe we don't need a king, maybe we could rule ourselves? Is it our fault no. that you have this problem? No, no, absolutely not. Because first of all, you must understand that the French Revolution was the result of the incorporation of the ideas I just spoke of, equality and justice of a liberated society. These were the words that were written by the philosopher of the Enlightenment. These were the words of people like Rousseau and Diderot and, and, and others who were there who, who looked upon man's nature and man's state and the governance of mankind at the time and realized that much of it was unjust, that there were social classes, that there were inequities in terms of taxation. For example, as an aristocrat, I paid no tax. The aristocrats do not pay tax. Below the aristocrats, you have a healthy middle class in France of wealthy people but are not noble, and they do not mix that freely. They do, but clearly there were people in positions of high authority who were commoners, they were not nobles. But the, the concepts of the Enlightenment were adopted by the upper classes in France, who looked at them in admiration and saw the realization of those values come to light in the American Revolution. And in the French Revolution, when the Bastille fell, which was a popular, that is, from the lower classes in Paris, it was an attack on the Bastille prison by these people. But they were joined by people of the middle class in some cases as well. They were there with some of the soldiers of the Garde Nationale who were there. Lafayette was there. But what you have to see is that the excesses of the revolution swept past the initial intentions of the upper classes of France that sought for a reformation, a, a, a reconstruction of of the French governing system, the way that the king was able to rule with virtually no control whatsoever, and that the people had no vote in anything. And they, most of them realized that the times were changing and that it would become inevitable that the people would rise up as they did. And what happened is that the upper classes of the revolution, the upper classes of France lost control of the revolution. And the middle classes and the lower middle classes and then the absolute poorest people in France took it over. Uh, Robert Pierre was not a poor man. He was a lawyer. He came from a middle-class family. They were not rich, but they were not poor. And most of the leaders of the worst parts of the revolution were, in fact, members of the middle class who came from educated families, from wealthy families in some cases. So this is a completely different thing than what the Americans did in 1776. You have to remember that France never had a revolution before. They never had a civil war like occurred in England in the 17th century where Parliament was able to enforce itself over the will of the king. And from that time on, every English king and then British king had to rule with a parliament. There was no such, there was no such thing in France. We had the Etats Généraux. This was a body called by the king when he needed money for something, or when he needed a ruling of advice from the aristocratic class, the church, and then the common class, which would have been represented by these very wealthy middle-class people as well. But the common people in France had no representation whatsoever. So there was just so much inequality that had there never been an American Revolution, had France not loaned America all this money, 
this was going to happen eventually anyhow. That is the one thing that might have precipitated an excess in zeal, shall we say, for the French Revolution and the economic misery in which the poorest people lived is the fact that, yes, the amount of money that was given to the United States during the course of the American Revolution was extremely high. What is truly surprising is that they say that the cost of French expenditure during this World War were almost 930 million livres. And then others were, other things were added as well. Another 1.2 million was added to this. And you know, plus, you have to realize that there was a debt incurred by France, not just the money that France had. There was a debt that France had to owe. His Majesty Louis said, in fact, had a loan of 10 million, I mentioned before, that he had to have paid back in some way. General, I am so thankful for all your time today. Your contribution and, and what you've offered to our country has been significant, and I, I certainly hope that the contribution that you've made to your own country pays off as it should, because I know these are some trying times. Is there anything you'd like to add before we finish? No, I would just like to say, Servitor, Monsieur, I'm very grateful for this time that uh, you have spent with me as well. I am an old man. I now hope I will be able to enjoy the retirement that I sought over two years ago. I am hopeful that my son will be returning. He is actually in America right now, in Philadelphia. He has been captured by the English in the island of Martinique. Martinique is one of our French islands I spoke of before in the Caribbean. He himself is now a general and was made military governor of the island. And unfortunately, the British in these first rounds of war with the French Republic have taken the island. And he himself was made prisoner. And to, to sum up and come back to the start in a sort of a way, he was made a prisoner and held on the island for a matter of weeks. And then it was agreed that he would be released on parole, which means that as an officer, you are allowed to leave with the promise that you will not take up arms again against your enemy. But you will not believe it. But do you know the man for whom he was exchanged for this parole? <laughs> I can't wait to hear this. The man is General Charles O'Hara, the man who tried to surrender to me at Yorktown, wow. the man who tried to surrender to Washington, and to whom Washington eventually told to surrender Cornwallis III to General Lincoln. That's who he was traded for? Yes. Oh, yes. my God. <laughs> Well, you know, that goes back to what we were talking about earlier. It's a small world. Somehow everybody knows everybody. Indeed, and seems to keep knowing them. General, thank you again for your time, and I hope your son gets home well and safe soon. And again, thank you for your time. So we promise you. After 50 years of service to his country, how is it possible that Rochambeau was imprisoned and scheduled for execution? How much more could one man give to his country? Yet I suppose things worked out as they were supposed to. Always the soldier first. Rochambeau didn't flee France. Instead, he made the assumption that his country would somehow make the right decision with his life. Thankfully, he had the same kind of patience and persistence to not give up on the American cause when Washington was about to make a critical error by attacking New York. Had Rochambeau not already participated in 13 sieges, or not had a lifetime of military experience, and the wisdom to not bring ego to the fight, perhaps the American Revolution would have failed and George Washington might have found his neck being stretched by the traitor's noose. Thanks for listening, and if you enjoyed this episode, subscribe now. I'm Tony Dean, and until next time, I'm history.